0: You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me today is Dr. Ann Goldberg, Associate Professor of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine and a member of the ACC AHA Blood Cholesterol Guidelines Panel. Ann, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you, hear your insights on the work you've been doing over the last six years or so with a new set of guidelines. And I wonder if you can mention to the audience a little bit about the background, how the panel was assembled, and obviously this was a departure from previous guideline processes. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you came to the conclusions that you did.
1: So the panel was assembled, right about 2008 by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the idea was to do evidence-based guidelines for cardiovascular risk reduction, and there were actually several panels. There was cholesterol, lifestyle, risk assessment, obesity, and hypertension. And the idea was to come up with integrated guidelines. And they wanted it to be very evidence-based. And so we were given sort of charges to come up with critical questions to answer about who should be treated, how they should be treated, and what is the evidence. And then there was a fairly significant amount of methodology deciding that the best gold standard evidence would be used, and that would be randomized controlled clinical trials and meta-analyses of clinical trials. So we actually depended heavily on the cholesterol treatment trialists, meta-analyses, which have a lot of patient-level data. And that is to give your highest level of recommendations. We also did expert opinion, but the NHLBI really wanted to avoid a large amount of expert opinion. And so we came up with a number of questions, and we were kind of limited by time and money as to how many questions we could look at, because all of every question required a substantial review of the literature, and then evaluation of papers and then grading of papers to see what the quality of the data were. And so it was a very labor-intensive process to do this. We wanted to come up with a guideline that was relatively simpler than previous that would be useful in large part for primary care physicians to figure out who to treat and not everything is covered but much of the final document includes a lot of the areas where there are still questions and then gives expert opinion as to what direction people could go and so we decided on who is going to benefit the most clearly where we have the best data are with the statins. And we have incredibly strong data with the statins, in spite of what people often hear in the media. And so we came up with four groups that benefit from statins. The people who should be on a high-intensity statin, and that is to get an LDL reduction of about 50% or more, are people who already have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Obviously, secondary prevention works. Another group are people who have probable genetic cholesterol problems. So that's the group of people over 21, we only focused on adults, who have LDL levels greater than or equal to 190 after you rule out secondary causes. And those people should be treated, and you don't really need to do a risk assessment on those people because you know they have a high lifetime risk. Obviously, in all of these situations, diet and lifestyle changes are at the top line and everything builds on top of those. So there's one secondary prevention group, three primary prevention groups. So the next primary prevention group where there are incredible data and very high risk are people with diabetes, particularly people who are in the 40 to 75 age range and have LDLs that ranged anywhere from 70 to 189. So the top three groups are all people who would benefit mostly from high intensity statin as much as you can do that. The fourth group has been somewhat controversial in terms of primary prevention. Who is going to benefit? You know, look at the trade-offs, the risk versus the benefit. And in fact, everything that is done in terms of our primary prevention group involves a risk discussion between the doctor and the patient. And so this is patient-centered medicine. You look at the patient, you talk to the patient, you assess their risk factors, and then you can use the risk calculator, the risk estimator, which is actually very easy to use. You can download it. It's a little Excel spreadsheet you put in about half a dozen items, and you can show the patient what their 10-year risk, and this 10-year risk includes stroke as well as heart attack. So fatal, non-fatal stroke, fatal, non-fatal MI, and stroke is a very important thing and affects a lot of women, a lot of African-Americans. The risk calculator includes larger populations than just Framingham, includes African-American patients, and in fact, that's one of the variables.
0: So Anne, I've downloaded the app my iPhone right from the ACCAHA to have that calculator. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy around that calculator initially, anyway. I think more recently, some things that uh, validate the calculator. What are your thoughts on that? How did you decide on the pooled cohort analysis rather than some of the other risk calculators.
1: Framingham is essentially a cohort analysis and deriving risk equations from that. And it was felt that there are good Framingham data and that can be used because it continues. You need an estimator that, first of all, goes out 10 years if you're going to estimate 10-year risk. And you want populations that are not already treated. So if you try to use this calculator in a population where you know a bunch of people are already on statins, they have much lower risk because as soon as you put somebody on a statin, Their risk goes down. So these are very large, well validated data sets that include a lot of things. What the calculator includes is age, male, female, black, white, whether or not people have diabetes. It includes total cholesterol, HDL, cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, cigarette smoking, and whether or not they're on blood pressure medicine. And that gives you fairly good information. And when you look at all of the different cells involved in these, you could set it out in graphs and look at everything. You really get a clear-cut idea of who's at high risk.
0: I'm very interested by that. So do you think the initial contract? controversy was because data sets of people that were already taking statins were tested with the calculator. Is that why it looked like it overestimated risk?
1: I think that was one thing. So one of the data sets probably included people already taking statins. Another data set probably included very highly selected, very healthy people. That was one data set, and that probably would overestimate. This is more of a broad population. These are people who are very high risk, many of them, and one of the complaints was that large numbers of people would end up being on statins, or recommended to be on statins. And from the standpoint of a lipidologist, I hear that and I think, well, yeah. What's the problem? Because we know how beneficial they are. We know they decrease risk. So the primary prevention question, which was one of the things that was controversial, we looked at the difference in terms of number needed to harm versus number needed to treat based on the things that we suspect are harms, you know, muscle problems and then the diabetes issue. And so looking at the number needed to treat versus the number needed to harm, you can draw lines And if you look at the greater than 7.5% 10-year risk, that's a risk level that actually comes out very well in terms of benefit versus risk. So, you know, you may want to consider people who are at lower risk. And if they're at lower risk, you can look at lifetime risk. So one of the things that this estimator does is it gives you lifetime risk. And so you can put up this graph in front of the patient showing here's your risk, here's average risk for 10 years, here's lifetime risk. You have diabetes, you're young, but you have diabetes, so you are at very high lifetime risk. Maybe you should consider treating you. The other thing you could consider is, okay, well, maybe your risk is not that high, but you have other things. You have a bad family history, for example. You may want to consider treatment, but nobody has to go on a statin. This is a risk discussion.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me today is Dr. Ann Goldberg, Associate Professor of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine and also member of the ACC AHA. Blood Cholesterol Guideline Panel. I thought it was clever that the risk calculator that was chosen gives you lifetime risk. I mean, that's an added benefit for those of us all who believe in lifetime risk, but yet you didn't have hard clinical trials 20 years or 15 years to draw from. I'm sure they didn't allow you to discuss lifetime risk in terms of a solid endpoint, but you were able to put it in as something that might taint your judgment. So if you looked at a patient who didn't fit treatment and they had a high lifetime risk, you could use that to make a decision to treat it. Right,
1: and- And the thing is, this is a risk estimator. If you're trying to decide whether people will benefit, you want to see whether their risk really puts them in a category where they will benefit. The whole idea is you want to decrease atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, both secondary and primary prevention.
0: Let me ask you, because people always talk about we had three clinical questions, the three CQs, as they say. And I'm not sure that all of our audience knows what three clinical questions you answered. And lest they be concerned that those questions weren't broad enough, I wonder if you could comment on what those questions were, and the audience can ponder whether or not that covers enough of the gamut in terms of risk reduction.
1: The idea was to develop in-depth answers to critical questions. And the first critical question was, what evidence supports LDL cholesterol goals for secondary prevention? And the second question was, what evidence supports LDL goals, cholesterol goals for primary prevention? And the third question was, what is the impact of the major cholesterol drugs on efficacy and safety?
0: Was non-HDL also included in those questions? No.
1: What happened initially is the panel came up with a whole bunch of questions. We voted on which questions we were most interested in. And eventually, sort of, it got cut down to these three major questions. What are the most important questions? And some things just did not get covered. And there were some things where we actually looked at evidence and thought, we really don't have enough evidence to even answer that question. And so this is how we ended up with the three critical questions.
0: So the first two were dealt with, is there evidence for goals for Primary and secondary prevention. And the third one was to look at the risk-benefit of all... Of all the drugs, right. Okay.
1: So we looked at all of the cholesterol-lowering drugs. We did not do exercise and diet because that was addressed by the lifestyle working group. And our charge was to actually look at cholesterol effects, primarily drug therapy.
0: All of us were kind of stunned that the goals were taken away. And since those were the focus of your literature search and the first two questions, maybe you can give our audience a brief synopsis of your thoughts on that. Not only your personal opinion, but what you concluded from the data.
1: Well, there was a very large amount of discussion on this subject for many, many months and conference calls. There were differences of opinion in the group. And eventually what it came down to is that on the basis of the randomized trial data, there were no randomized clinical trials with cardiovascular outcomes trials where people were treated to a goal. They were all comparing one drug to another, one drug to placebo, or or other things. But there were no studies where people were titrated to a goal. Now, you can infer various levels of LDL of benefit on the basis of in-trial data, on other data, and on. So you could argue that maybe we should just say that we should aim for an LDL less than 100 in everybody. There's just not enough data. The majority of the group came down to sort of a majority opinion that we did not have data for that. There was a minority opinion that would have favored an LDL goal. However, we did not eliminate LDL measurement, and that seems to be a major confusion. If you want to get, say, a 30% drop in moderate-intensity therapy or a 50% drop in high-intensity therapy, well, how do you know if you've done that if you don't measure the LDL cholesterol? So all of the flowcharts discuss measuring LDL to see what the effect of therapy is. If you don't get an adequate therapy, then you need to revisit what the patient is doing, look at other secondary causes, look at adherence, and look at the fact that some people may not get a benefit or some people may not be able to tolerate enough statin to get to that where they need to be, in which case you need to consider adding additional therapy. And we never said not to add additional therapy. We said consider additional therapies in these situations. We also had a significant amount of material addressing statin tolerance problems and what to do about it. We had a lot of discussion of safety of all of the drugs. So I think actually the whole document and supporting document are fairly nuanced, very patient-centric, and involve a lot of how the approach to the individual patient. These are guidelines, not mandates. Guidelines depend on the clinical judgment of the practitioner in their implementation.
0: Let me ask you a couple of additional questions that people ask, and I get a chance to talk to one of the panel members, which is exciting. Those people who felt there was data for niacin, for example, to reduce cardiovascular events as monotherapy, they want to know what happened to that evidence. And then the second question, which I think we've discussed in private, is what about that patient with familial hypercholesterolemia who starts out with an LDL of 300? and you get them down to 150, and none of us are happy with that. If you can explain to us how the recommendations deal with those issues. Right.
1: There are really not much in the way of outcomes trial data, if any, for combination therapy. But if you're going to add another drug, you may want to consider using a drug where there are other outcomes data, at least for monotherapies, particularly the bile acid sequestrants and niacin. With regard to FH, I was very much interested in FH on this panel. And in fact, we call out FH and we discuss FH in the document and realizing that people are at extremely high risk and that a single drug therapy may not be adequate for them and that there are additional therapies. When you're looking at FH, there are not a lot of specific FH data, but no one thinks that it's ethical to not treat these people in the absence of randomized trials of FH so clearly, there is expert opinion with regard to FH. And in fact, FH will, may require the assistance of people who know more lipidology. And so that would be an area, particularly for National Lipid Association members who are interested in better therapy of FH, to work on that.
0: I should point out, Anne, that uh, you helped author a phenomenal document on hypercholesterolemia, which our audience members could download from lipid.org, the website of the National Lipid Association, which specifically addresses that disease. And the reason that LDL over 190 is such a high risk factor is to identify those patients, correct?
1: Right. LDL over 190 may not identify all FH patients, not all patients with LDL greater than 190 have FH. But clearly, anybody in that LDL cholesterol range is at higher risk. And so you'd want to treat them anyway.
0: So my last question comes down to implementation. You know, I've always joked that I think number of pages in a guideline document is inversely proportional to the implementation because the more confusing it is, the less likely we are to have doctors get the message. How comfortable are you with the simplicity of this document? And did you guys think about how easy will it be to implement since it's sort of a departure from our standard comfort zone of treating to a number?
1: Well, I think that we talked a lot about implementation, try to make things as clear as possible, particularly with the flow diagrams. And in fact, there are additional papers that are coming out and have come out. There is an Annals of Internal Medicine paper that is actually a shortened version, which explains the key points. And so I think that that is an issue. And one of the things that had been initially done or thought about when the NHLBI was doing all this was to have integrated guidelines and an implementation working group. Once the NHLBI decided that it was going to have professional societies publish these guidelines and that they were not in the guideline business anymore, that sort of piece of the puzzle did not come out. And so people are actually working on it within the individual societies. The AHA, ACC are very interested in implementation issues is my understanding. And so I think that we need to get the word out, clarify it. I mean, I think it took a long time for um, ATP3 to really get clear. Many people were unclear for many years People did not use Framingham scoring because there was no easy way to do it. I think that some of the issues with these guidelines is the possibility of integrating things like risk evaluators into electronic medical records or have it on devices, et cetera, to make it easier to use and to talk to patients with.
0: Well, Ann, I can't thank you enough for going through all those details and sharing your wisdom about how the guidelines were written as well as your insights on them. And I do encourage our audience members members to actually read them. There are a lot of rumors out there, and I think that when you read them, you get some of the answers. But I, I can't tell you how pleased I am that you were able to take time to be on ReachMD today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit us at reachmd.com lipids to download this podcast and others in the series. And thank you very much for listening.